0: I hope everyone's doing good tonight. It's good to see everybody. Um, Try to be as time efficient as possible. Um, So we'll get right into it. Uh, Go ahead and turn to Matthew chapter 12 and we'll pray and we'll study together. Father, thank you so much for this evening. Uh, Father, I want to thank you for your mercy. I want to thank you for your grace Lord, you're perfect. You are. I was just reminded, sitting in the pew, Lord, that you uh, that your your favor on us is is because of your nature, Father God. You're just so good to us, Lord. None of us, including the one speaking, has done anything ever to deserve anything from you but wrath and judgment. But you decided to be good to us, Father God, and we just come tonight, and we are. Uh, we want to remind ourselves of Your nature. We want to remind ourselves that You're the one that had pity on us. We, we, we were those who offended You. We were those who were enemies of Yours. We, we rejected You and despised You and, and You had pity on us. And You loved us enough to give Your Son for us and to come and to change our hearts so that we would believe and we'd realize how much we need You and, and we'd want You, Lord. And You've given us new hearts so that we can, we can love You and we can see what You say to us in, in Your Word. And we can see how loving Your warnings are, how loving Your commandments are, and how You're, you're trying to keep us from harm and keep us from ruin. And uh, we want to thank You for that. King Jesus, You're everything to us. You're, you're our treasure. We love You. And I pray that, God, You'll open our hearts tonight to, to love You more and to, to take in Your Word tonight and, and take what You want us to take from it and be changed by it, Father, for the glory of our King Jesus' name because ultimately He deserves for His bride to be um, holy as He is holy. So please do that for us tonight. In His name we pray. Amen. Now, last time we were in Matthew 12, we saw that Jesus taught of the unpardonable sin. When the Holy Spirit reveals Jesus as the Messiah, and people intentionally not just disregard it, but fight against it, they're calling the Spirit of truth to be a liar. And that's the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And these Pharisees whom Jesus confronted did just that. They saw all the attesting miracles that Jesus had done by the power of the Spirit of God, and they said that He had done these not by the power of God, but by the power of Satan. They proved how evil their hearts already were by their words. And that's the context that we find ourselves in tonight uh, in Matthew chapter 12. In verse 38, Matthew writes... Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. Jesus had just exposed these men as apostates who had willfully rejected both him and the evidence given by the Holy Spirit. They still addressed him merely as teacher, not Messiah, not Lord, teacher. Although they had already seen all the signs that were needed to know that he was so much more that He was the Savior. What they were really saying was that they didn't accept His authority to pronounce judgment over them and they wanted something different. That's important to know. That's the world we live in today. God's done all that He's going to do by the way of signs. It's not a sign that Ransom starts crying. Babies do that. If you're on the podcast you can't hear, the newest baby made his presence known. It's way cuter than me, so I'm not offended. It's great. That's the world we live in today. God's done everything He's going to do by the way of signs. He sent His Son. He's proven His validity with signs and wonders. And He's given us the Bible so that we can hear the truth and believe. The Holy Spirit uses the preached word to awaken the dead hearts of men and bring them to faith and repentance. That's it. That's That's all it takes at this point. That's what God does in the hearts of men today. Still, most reject or mock the gospel because they want something else. They want God to jump through hoops to suit them before they'll acknowledge Him as God. They want an ecstatic experience or they want to feel the hand of an angel on their shoulder when they are in a car wreck or or something like that. And they want these things before they'll believe. Most refuse to believe until God does the truly impossible and changes His truth to fit their desires. That's impossible. God's not going to change who He is. And God's not going to change His truth to to suit us because He'd be wrong in doing so. It'd be harmful for us if He did so. But today you'll hear so many in our world say things like, I just can't believe in a God who says and then you insert whatever biblical truth is on the table at the time, right? We've all heard people say that. I've heard a lot of people say that. You'll you'll talk to somebody out in the world about Christ, you'll share the gospel, and it'll all come down to, well, I just can't believe in a God like that. I just can't believe in a God who says this is wrong, or He's going to throw these people in hell. What they really mean is that if God would change to suit them, if He would agree that homosexuality or adultery or abortion or gossip or whatever else is acceptable, then they would accept Him as God. But if not, they won't. And that just proves how evil their hearts really are. Jesus says this in Matthew when He writes in verse 39, But He answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to To it, except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Now this doesn't mean that everyone who seeks for a sign is evil and spiritually adulterous. Let's not forget that the way that God proved that Jesus is the Messiah was through signs and wonders. So it wasn't Wrong that these people look for a sign. It was prophesied all throughout the Old Testament that the Messiah would come and he would do these signs and wonders, right? So looking for those signs, there's nothing wrong with that. Jesus isn't given a blanket statement saying that if you look for any sign, then you're an evil and adulterous generation. No, we've got to keep this in context. Here, Jesus is saying that this generation, which had already proven to be evil by their rejection of the Holy Spirit, is seeking a sign different than what God offered. He'd already proven they were evil. He's just saying, hey, this evil generation that's already been proven to be evil, oh, now they're seeking for a sign. But it wasn't the signs that had been given. It was something else. Now, they're adulterous because they proved to be following in the steps of their forefathers. All throughout Israel's history, God has often accused them of adultery against Him. He says in Jeremiah 3, 8 and 9, Uh, Judah saw that for all the adulteries of that faithless one, Israel, I had sent her away with the decree of divorce. Yet her treacherous sister, Judah, did not fear. But she too went and played the whore. Because she took her whoredom lightly, she polluted the land, committing adultery with stone and tree. Israel's adultery... Against God wasn't a physical adultery like we think about. Israel's adultery against God had always come in the form of idolatry or pagan worship. And these men were proving to be evil and adulterous not only by rejecting Jesus, but by choosing their idolatry over Him. That's the same thing their ancestors had done. Uh, God said of Israel again in Jeremiah chapter 2, For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living water, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns, that can hold no water. These men proved to be the same mind as, of the same mind as their forefathers because they were rejecting Jesus, the fountain of living water, and they were clinging to their idolatry of self, which they pursued through their merit-based religion that couldn't save them. They would only accept Jesus if He would perform some sign in which He aligned Himself with their way of thinking. When they say they want a sign, what they're really saying is we want you to do something that we accept, that we feel comfortable with. Something that fits in our wheelhouse. Something that doesn't really call us out on the carpet and call us to change. Jesus guarantees the opposite of that. When he says, no sign will be given to them except the sign of the prophet Jonah. Of course, we remember that Jonah, uh, as he was fleeing God's call, was swallowed by the great fish and he remained uh, three days and three nights in the belly of the fish. Then the fish vomited him up on land. And we don't really need to get bogged down in all the details of of Jonah's experience. That would be a fun story. In fact, if you you want to, uh, some time ago, I don't remember exactly when it was, but a few months ago, uh, Brother Kyle took us through the entire book of Jonah, did a really, really good job. So you can go back and listen to the podcast if you want to. But what Jesus is saying is that since these men had uh, rejected all the other attesting miracles that proved Him to be the Son of God, the only other sign they'd receive was that of His resurrection from the dead. Just as Jonah had been three days in the belly of the great fish, Jesus would be three days in the tomb after His crucifixion. After that time, He would be resurrected. Now this is the most definitive sign that He is the Son of God and the Savior of mankind. And His resurrection didn't align Jesus with the apostate Judaism of His day at all. In fact, it set Him undeniably as superior to it. Judaism's attempt to save by the works of the law would never save anyone from death. Christ conquered death, hell, and the grave. The works-based religion of Judaism is always destined to only condemn men to death. It couldn't save men from it. In 1 Corinthians 15.56, we see that it says, The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. And Paul explains this in Galatians 5.3, saying that whoever would live by the law, he's obligated to keep the whole law. So, the sting of death is sin, and sin's power is the law, and if you try to live by the law, you have to keep the whole law. Well, that sounds great, except for we're guaranteed that we can't keep the whole law. James 2 tells us this. It says, for whoever keeps the whole law, but fails in one point, has become guilty of all of it. Well, that kind of throws a monkey wrench in uh, the Pharisees' religious ideas because they lived on a merit-based system. They also lived on a kind of a, a weighted balance system. They thought that there were weightier laws, that if you kept these, but you messed up on all these what they would consider not so major laws, then your good would outweigh your bad. Because you've kept enough of the law to outweigh your inability to keep other parts of the law. What the Bible tells us is that if you fail in one part of the law, you're guilty of the entire law. So now you're backed into a corner to where if you fail at all, if you sin at all, then you can't save yourself from death. You're doomed. And we see how futile this is. Because in 1 Kings 8.46, we're assured that there is no one who does not sin. So, Jesus would conquer the grave and ensure eternal life for His people, but these men would reject this salvation, as many still do today. Some do so by following other religions, but most in our society do so in a more subtle way. Most people that reject Christ, they reject the validity of Christ's resurrection by making it really just of none effect in their mind. Um, What I mean is, they either convince themselves that they're a good person, and that God won't hold their sin against them on the day of judgment, so they don't really need the cross and the resurrection so much because they're a pretty good old guy, they're a pretty good old girl, so on the day of judgment, you know, the good's going to outweigh the bad, and and there's no way God would throw them in hell. They're not bad enough to go there. Or, they convince themselves that there is no judgment day, and there's no afterlife at all. So why do you have to worry about following Christ? They, they, They believe that, you know, you just die and that's it. That's kind of the, the main ideologies that echo through our world today. Either I'm good enough, so I don't have to, I don't need a Savior to die for me. I can handle that on my own. However you want to package that idea. That's really the core of the heart. Or, well, there's nothing to be saved from because I'm just going to die and then I'm just going to take a dirt nap and that's it. So I don't need to save That's really what most people in the world today think. Not some people, most people think that. Jesus proves them all wrong. When He says in verse 41, The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. And He goes on in verse 42. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. What Jesus is pointing out so lovingly, you know, these these things can sound really harsh. and, And even as believers, sometimes we can read the warnings of Christ and we almost... I don't know how to say it maybe, but we don't have the right emotional response to it. We're, we almost feel hard against it because it seems so hard toward us. And we forget the idea that Jesus is saying these things so that His people whom He died to save will hear, believe it, and be rescued from destruction. This is His love toward us. He's telling us these things so that we hear it. And if we need to fear... We fear and we repent and we get back on the right track following Him in obedience. If we're walking in obedience, we're encouraged to stay walking in obedience. These are the loving admonitions of Christ. But what He's telling us here, in love for His people and in warning for all those who are outside of Christ, the day is coming when all people, regardless of what age they live or lived in, Will be gathered together to stand before God's judgment. One day, every single human being from Adam all the way to the last child that will ever be born in the human race, they're all gonna, we're all gonna stand collectively together in front of not only each other, but also in front of God and His holy angels and the saints that are already there, and we're going to be judged. Everybody in the world is gonna have to give an account. Of their life, And on that day, the men of Nineveh will rise up and bear witness against these men and anyone who follows in their footsteps. Now, what are they going to bear witness about? They will stand as witnesses that men and women should repent when they're confronted with the truth of their sin and the coming judgment. Guys, in the church today... We almost act sometimes like preaching about sin, preaching hard about repentance, and preaching about hell if you don't, is not really part of the gospel. It's almost like we want to kick it out and say, that's not really part of the good news. I remember when I was growing up in church and I was a little kid, Joe, you know, the the revival preacher would come, you know, and we always, you know, as the little kids, we called him the scarier-going-to-hell guy, you know, because... Back then, that's pretty much... I mean, if you had a three-night revival, the first two and a half nights were everybody's going to hell. And then he got to, and I quote, the good part. Y'all know what I'm talking about, right? You were you were hanging to the end of every service when he would start his first of five closings and they would start playing just as I am however many verses it took to get everybody up there or until I guess he thought he got his money's worth. And he preaches about love and grace and mercy for however long it takes, but it's only after he's told you for an hour that you're all going to hell and there's no way around it. You know what I'm talking about? And in my mind as a child, without knowing it, I did what I think most people do. You take the truth of sin and hell and the need of repentance and all that kind of stuff, and we kind of split it off and we say, well, that's not really part of the good news. That's kind of the appetizer that they serve you so that you're really hungry for the good news. Well, no, that's not true. The truth about my sin and about my deserving hell is just as much a part of the good news of Jesus Christ as the fact that He saved me from it. It may not feel as good to me, but I ask you this, if it weren't for the fact that I don't deserve salvation, could I really appreciate salvation? No. If it weren't for the fact that I knew the truth about my need for salvation, I'm going to tell you right now, me nor any of you would have cared to receive it. You know why I know? Because that's the way God preaches it. And I just think He knows better than all of us. I don't think Jesus ever preached a sermon where He said, now listen all you guys, I just love you to pieces. And y'all are pretty much perfect. But you guys little sin thing. We're going to deal with that at the end of the service. Don't worry about it. For right now, let's just... Tell you what, let's pass the juice and crackers out. Let's go and have a little communion party right now. Let's set the mood. Jesus never did that. He said, Repent and believe the gospel. Why? Because we have to know the truth. What these men are going to stand up in judgment and say is that men and women should repent when the truth about, and hear me, Sin and punishment are preached. Look at this. When Jonah walked through Nineveh, has anybody ever noticed what his whole message was? If you guys love the fact that we're all trying to get a little bit shorter from this pulpit, y'all would have loved Jonah. I mean, you'd have hated his message, but you got out in time. This was his entire message. I'm going to preach two sermons in a sermon, Kyle. Watch me pull this off. Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. That's it. That's the whole thing. Well, you talk about it, you're going to hell, sermon. That's it. There weren't any signs of healing or exercising demons. Jonah didn't raise anybody from the dead. Didn't hear one didn't heal one single leper. Didn't cure a cold. There wasn't any, even any mention about mercy in there, was it? Forty days and you will be destroyed. There was only warning of the coming judgment of God. Now how did these men in the city respond? They repented in sackcloth and ashes and with fasting. Everyone from the king down to the smallest person. And then verse 10 tells us, When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that He said He would do to them, and He did not do it. Was their repentance legitimate? Obviously, yes. Likewise, the queen of Sheba will stand up and bear witness against all who are without Christ on the day of judgment because she sought out Solomon. Now, the word of Solomon's wisdom had reached her, if you read 1 Kings. And she came from far away to taste of the wisdom that God had given this man. And when the queen of Sheba had seen all the wisdom of Solomon, the house that he had built, the food of his table, the seating of his officials, and the attendance of his servants, their clothing, his cupbearers, and his burnt offerings that he offered at the house of the Lord, there was no more breath in her. She wasn't disappointed. And this is Jesus' point. In those two references. The men of Nineveh repented when they heard the truth that came and found them. They didn't go looking for Jonah. God went through amazing lengths to get the message to them. And it wasn't... Very palpable in our way of thinking. It wasn't a feel-good sermon. There wasn't even a mention of mercy. They had to infer that there might be mercy if they reacted correctly. There was only truth about sin and judgment. And they repented at the truth that came and found them. The queen of Sheba heard of the wisdom of Solomon and she went and found it. They responded this way to what they saw in mere men without the benefit of supernatural signs. And Jesus taught more truth, and He demonstrated more wisdom than Solomon or Jonah, and He proved to be greater than both of them through the miracles He performed. And still, most people in the world will neither seek Him out or respond rightly when they're confronted with His truth because they have become hardened against it. That's Jesus' point. Our Lord explains how this hardening happens. Um, in verse 43, He says, "...when the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest but finds none." Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits, more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. So also it will be with this evil generation. Now, many people have, have tried to see this text and use this text about uh, in some way to be about demonic exorcism or about spiritual warfare, but, but it's not. That's not what this is about. This is, Jesus is still talking about this generation. He started the text we read tonight with an evil and adulterous generation seeks a sign. And here at the end of this parable, he says, so it will be. Or so so also will it be with this evil generation. So in context, he's still teaching a lesson about the men in front of him. About the nation in front of him. This is a parable about Israel. And that's the way we have to understand it or we understand it wrongly. As we said, Israel had consistently engaged in the worship of idols throughout their history. As we, uh, <clears throat> As we said, Israel did this over time and they did it in increasing ways and often God would chasten the nation and they would turn from their idols for a time. They would pursue morality and they would look better and they would seem more holy on the outside. But the hearts of the people remain greatly unchanged. If you track through the Old Testament, you see that pattern over and over and over, don't you? Just read through the book of Judges. What would happen? God would bless. Israel would get lax. They would turn to idolatry and pagan worship. They would go marry among the Canaanites and all these things God said don't do. And then what would happen? God would turn them over to their enemies. Israel would repent. God would deliver them. And then we just go through this whole cycle again. How many times? Countless. Over and over and over and over. Just as the demon in the parable would return with seven more like him, every time Israel returned to their false gods, their corruption grew worse and worse. And this was evidenced by the sexual immorality that they committed as Israel intermarried with the Canaanites. It increased to the point of human sacrifices as Israel offered their children on the pagan altars. And finally... Israel had become totally apostate as a nation. Their idolatry, don't miss this, was of the worst kind. It was veiled in a form of ceremonial religion that made the outside of their spiritual house look clean while their hearts remained dead and full of corruption. I say that's the worst kind because that's the kind that you can't notice. Once we get to that point, it's very hard for us to be convicted that we're wrong there. You know why? Because we just look so stinking religious. We look so good on the outside that we, don't, we can't notice the deadness within ourselves anymore because on the outside, we're, we're checking all the boxes and we're doing all the things that we really think we ought to be doing so we're totally deceived by the corruption of our own hearts. And that's, the where, that's where Israel had found itself here in Matthew chapter 12. And we've seen this in the United States. Don't think that this is some isolated example. No, this carries across history and across different nations and people groups. God says to us from His throne in Isaiah 45, I am the Lord and there is no other besides me. There is no God. And we've always as a nation known it. Um, The first true settlers in America were Christians who came for the purpose of religious liberty. Yeah, there were men who came before, but they weren't really here to settle. They were here to strip mine the land and take gold from the native people and all that kind of stuff. And by the way, leave some pretty bad diseases that the natives didn't have immunity to. And then they were going to leave, right? But the first people who came to North America what we now call the United States of America, and they were coming to stay and make a life for themselves? They were the Puritans, weren't they? They were the separatists. They were the ones that were fleeing religious persecution in England, and they came here, and they didn't just come willy-nilly, and they didn't just come because they didn't have anything better going on. They came because they cared so desperately about worshiping the God of the Bible the right way that they were willing to leave everything and come to a place where there was no civilization and just try to make it for the sake of worshiping God biblically. So it's not that these people did not know God. From the very roots of us as as a nation, we knew God. It's not that we never knew Him. It's that although He has often called to us, we have more often turned from Him. When when we became spiritually cold as a nation in our early years, we were granted the two great awakenings. When we turned to worship prosperity in the roaring 20s, we were disciplined by the Great Depression of the 1930s. And so many times across the decades, we have rebelled against God through the sexual revolution and the liberal political revolutions, through media and entertainment, and we have served our idols all the while using them to really make much of ourselves above God until we find ourselves in the same situation that's described in Romans chapter 1. That's really what we've done. All of our idols in our country has always really been about what idolatry is really all about. Anytime you have an idol in your life, it's not about that stone statue. It's not about that wooden statue. It's not about that dollar. It's not about that TV. It's not about that job. It's really about what? You and me. People worship false gods, stone statues, because guess who gets to make up what that statue really says? The person who carved the statue. So who really gets to be God? You and I do. You see? People worship money because you can can get a lot of money and make the money make much of you. People worship exercise or whatever because when you look good, people look at you and make much of you. It's all about worshiping ourselves. That's what idolatry has always really been. And it's so subtle because we can hide our idolatry of self behind some very noble things. Men throughout history who have seemed very religious, maybe not even in Christianity, maybe in other religions or whatever, but they seem very religious and very pious and all those kind of things, so a lot of times it all comes back to they're doing it so that other people will make much of them, right? Every cult leader, that's what happens. Every false religion started by somebody that wanted to be made much of, so he starts his whole religion where people really see him as the guru or the one with all the answers. That's really what all idolatry is about in all of its forms. And America as a whole has done this. We find ourselves in the same place that we see described in Romans chapter 1. I just want to read several verses for a second. If you want to turn to Romans 1, you can. I'm going to start in verse 18. But it says this, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. You want a sign that proves who God is? Look at the sun. Look at trees. Take a breath. Look at a little child. Look around and you see His divine nature in front of you. Verse 21, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, verse 24, God gave them up in the lust of their heart to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever amen and that's just what we've done we have worshiped the creature we haven't in, in America i don't think worshiped Creeping, crawling animals. You know who we've worshipped? We've worshipped ourselves. We've worshipped us. It's a culture of me. It's a culture of I. It's a culture of I'm the most important one in the room. And everything in creation had better been to make much of me and accommodate me, including God. Or everything else is wrong. And I don't have to listen. Isn't that our culture? Yes. That's our culture. You know people like that. You are people like that, so am I. By nature, that's us. We want us to be made much of, not God. Verse 26, For this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations to those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And I'll skip to verse 32. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. The reason America can't tell the difference between male and female anymore. The reason we have people making a fortune every year, literally ripping babies limb from limb in the womb and sucking the pieces out with a hose. And the reason people call all of this evil good and they call good evil is because we have for the entire history of our nation swept our house clean so that we looked morally nice, but we stayed emptied of God's presence and continued to rebel against Him in our hearts. Jesus is speaking to these men concerning the religious condition of the nation. And I just gave the condition of our nation as a modern example. If America was in the the Bible today, God would probably say you have become a byword. Because at some point in time, should the Lord tarry long enough, people in the future will speak of America and the destruction that we're going to undergo because of our rebellion against them. And it will be a lesson to others, don't do that. Still, we can't leave this truth as just being about nations this must be considered on a personal level as well. You and I have to take this and we have to stick this truth into our own soul and let it examine our own heart. Just you and the truth. Just me and the truth. Because if we don't, we're not really getting what Jesus wants to do here with this. In context, Jesus gives this example about the group, but He also relates it to the situation of a single person. Again, if you read in verse 43, he says, when the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, not out of people, not out of a nation, out of a person. So it's about a nation here, but it's also applied to the individual. Nations are made up of what? Individuals. A nation is nothing more but many individuals. And it's idolatry and collective rebellion of the individuals that bear fruit on the national level. But each person will have to answer for his own sin. Now the problem is not that people don't try to get their life right, like we so mockingly say so many times here. It's not that they don't try to get their life right so that their house appears to be swept clean and put in order. It's that their hearts remain empty and void of God's presence. The warning is this. Regardless of how moral we can make our lives look, if we're not indwelled by the Holy Spirit of God, then we will again be overtaken by our idolatry. We can, you know, I think about, I minister to a lot of people in in prison and stuff like that, and I've noticed that um, a lot of them falsely put their hope in rehab. They think if they can just get to the right rehab, and if they can just stay long enough, then that system, that program, is going to save them from what they truly are by nature. And what I try to tell them all the time, Emily, is this if, if rehab's great and God may use it, but if you don't get something stronger than your nature in you to give you a new nature, if you're not remade, rehab's just a band aid that's going to fall off eventually. It's not going to last forever. Um, we can't just try to do external things and clean ourselves up and think that our problem's solved. We have to be indwelled by the Holy Spirit of God, and if if we don't, we're going to remain slaves to our idolatry and to our sin the duration of our existence. Um, And if that's the case, it'll be worse than it was to begin with because we will look from the outside like we've gotten our act together, but on the inside, we're still dead and we're still empty. It's just that we may not be able to see it after a certain amount of time. Our lives will still have a vacancy sign flashing on the marquee of our heart and it will soon be occupied by the sin that will kill us. So how do we make sure that's not us? Now I know that's saying a lot and I'm sure um, there's a lot of... you know, I said a lot of that and it's kind of like Brother Tony is preaching this morning. Anytime you talk about these kind of things and you start saying that you can look like something on the outside but be deceived and not be that on the inside, a lot of people start getting really antsy and they start thinking, is it me? And I think Jesus is very tender to that because you know what? He understands the human condition. And one thing I was praying about before I came from preach this because I, I knew how it was going to be taken. I know the edge of it. Trust me. Okay? The end result of what we're about to talk about is this. Christ not only wants to warn those who are outside of salvation that they need to repent and turn through this, but for those of us that do belong to Him, He's very quick to reassure us that we are His. And He gives us tangible evidence that proves that we're His, that we can hang on to regardless of how we feel, regardless of what anybody says, regardless of what Satan would whisper to us. Okay, So just hang on a few more minutes. Here's the question. We've talked about nations that deceive themselves by reoccurring idolatry. They hardened their heart over time against God so that eventually they were totally apostate and they just couldn't believe. We've talked about individuals that did that. And over the last two times that I've spoken with you, this has all been in the context of the unpardonable sin. We're still under that context. Intentionally rejecting the truth of who Jesus is when it's witnessed of by the power of the Holy Spirit and the proof that He gives. First signs and wonders now... Through his conviction, through the preaching of the Word of God that tells of Christ. So, how do we make sure that that's not us? How do I know, Lucas, that that's not me? How do I know I'm on the wrong side of this? Jesus gives us the answer in the next few verses. And it all comes down to relationship. And I just want to go through this very quickly. I'm almost done. Matthew writes in verse 46, "...while He was still speaking to the people, behold, His mother and His brothers stood outside asking to speak to Him. But He replied to the man who told Him, Who is My mother and who are My brothers? And stretching out His hand toward His disciples, He said, Here are My mother and My brothers. And whoever does the will of My Father in heaven is My brother and sister and mother." As I was going over this, I thought this tied so well into what Brother Tony preached about this morning. We don't compare notes. We don't know what each other's going to... I mean, Tony pretty much knows where I'm going to be going from because I'm just going through Matthew. We don't talk, though, about these things. Um, I think God just orchestrated this. So I'm going to echo some of the things he said this morning. While Jesus was saying these things that we've been talking about tonight and the last time, Mary, his mother, and his brothers by birth... If you read Mark 6, they're James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon. These came looking for Him. And our Lord takes this opportunity to help teach us that relationship with Him goes beyond physical birth or a certain kind of familiarity. Um, There are many people who think themselves to be Christian just because they're born in the South. Matt Chandler famously tells this story. He was asking this guy one time in an airport, I think. He said, hey, uh, are you a believer? Are you a Christian? He said, dude, I'm from San Antonio, of course. Yeah, we should laugh. That That would be a great place to laugh because that is stupid. As if being born in the Bible Belt automatically means that you're a Christian. I mean, obviously it looks like God has extended favor to you because He put you in a place where you would hear the gospel and could possibly believe it. But being born there doesn't make you a Christian, right? And also, there's a lot of people who are kind of raised around the faith, right? Like everybody in Mississippi knows kind of who Jesus is. They kind of know the Christmas story, the Easter story. They know there's a lot of bad things you're not supposed to do and that kind of stuff. We're very familiar with it in a certain way. But that doesn't make us a Christian. Romans 8 and 9 says, You, however, are not in the flesh but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. So only those who are filled with His Spirit belong to Jesus. And Jesus says here that we know if we are His, relationally speaking, when we hear His Word and we obey. That's the evidence that Christ is pointing to. And John ties this idea of being filled with Christ and obeying Him together um, obviously better than I could do when he records Jesus' words in John 14, 23. This is what he says. Jesus says here, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my Father will love Him and we will come to Him and make our home with Him. So what Jesus says is, if we've been given a heart to love Jesus, and just in case we're kind of confused about what loving Jesus is, is it, is it only an emotional thing? Do I have to feel a certain way all the time? Is it a this? Is it that? Does it feel this way? Look this way? He says, He will keep my word. What does it mean to love God? Well, the Bible says in 1 John chapter 5, verse 3, it says this is the love of God that we keep His commandments and His commandments are not burdensome. If you have a heart that loves God in that you desire to obey God, not because you're earning something, but because you know His commandments are not burdensome, because you know that He's just smarter than you, that His ways are best that even though it's hard and we often fail, if I could just find some way to obey Him perfectly, my life would be totally joyful because He just knows better than me and He loves me more than I love me and He cares more about my joy than even I care about my joy. If that's the way your heart beats toward Him and His commandments, it's not perfect, but if that's been turned on in you, I would say you're one that loves Christ. And what does, God, what does the Lord say there? He says, And my Father will love Him, and we will come to Him and make our home with Him. Miss Pansy, that's relational. How do we know that we're His? When He lives in us. When He's made His home in us. How do I know that's true? How do I know that's happened? When I have a lifestyle that resembles the one He just explained. We know that we abide in God and vice versa when we start to live a lifestyle of obedience to His commandments. This doesn't mean that we earn sonship. It means that we start to believe on the name of Jesus Christ. In 1 John 3.23, he explains it this way. And this is his commandment that we believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he has commanded us. When we are granted faith in Jesus, the Bible says that we are indwelled by the Spirit of God and brought into a familial relationship with Him. Ephesians 1 tells us in verse 13 and 14, "...in Him," talking about Christ, "...you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promise Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory." So when we are filled with the Spirit of God, He sets to work bringing about a change in us so that we walk more and more as Jesus walked and we obey the commandments of God hopefully increasingly. And when we are struggling, Katie, to obey the commandments of God, we may do that for a time. But we'll be, eventually we'll become the most miserable people on the face of the planet. Kyle and I were talking about this not too long ago. If you're the most miserable person in the world when you know the truth, and you, but you also know you're not doing it. Because every time you don't do it, you're kind of biting yourself a little bit because you're like, man, I missed an opportunity. Every time you choose something over it, you, you know it's wrong. You can't even enjoy what you chose to do the way you used to, right? Nothing else tastes as good as it's supposed to taste. Nothing else is as fun as it used to be because you know that you've given up something better. And that nags on you until eventually you set about changing it. That's practically the way that the Holy Spirit works in our life. And by this, when that's the case within us, guys, we know that our adultery and our idolatry has been put away. By this, we can know that we've not committed the unpardonable sin. If that's a worry, if that's a terror in your heart, look at your life. Has God changed the trajectory of your life where you used to be nothing but disobedient? And now, though you may not be a perfect bull market line of of perfect obedience, even if you're kind of staggering like this and sometimes you have drops, but your, your trajectory has overall changed, you can know that that's not you. You haven't committed the unpardonable sin. And by this, we have assurance that we're born of God. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, I want to thank You so much for this night. Lord, I know it was long, and it was, it was longer than I wanted it to be, Father God, but I want to thank You for where we got. Father, I pray that, that we'll see Your determination in 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 warning us and in, in, in calling us to obedience and in... Uh, Causing us to persevere in the faith, Father God, because you just don't release your grip on us. You, you continue to, um, show us the, the rewards that you offer for obedience and you continue to, to hammer us with the, the warnings of disobedience because you have just dedicated yourself to make sure that we will make it to the end and we'll be with you forever, Lord. We love you. We praise you for that because if it weren't for that, if your hand wasn't clenched to us so hard, um, we couldn't hang on to you. We'd fall away. Lord, I want to thank you so much for holding us in your hand. I pray that that will be changed, Father God. Please change me, like help me see my sin more clearly, see the the benefit of obedience more clearly, and pursue it more passionately. And I pray that we'll all do that, Father God, because. Lord, I know that You want us to have the best. I know You want us to have joy, Father. And, and ultimately, Your Son, our Lord Jesus, He deserves a bride that's without spot or wrinkle or blemish. And Father, I know that we all fall short of that right now. So we, we need You to keep working on us, Father. Make us beautiful for Your Son, for our, for our Bridegroom Christ. Make us beautiful for Him so that when He returns, He's pleased with what He sees. He gets what He deserves, Lord. I pray those things in His name, Father. Amen.